Hey everyone, I'm Megan and welcome to this week's episode of Finance Explained. This week is all about John Bogle, the superhero of Wall Street for retail investors, founder of Vanguard, and the creator of investable low-cost index funds. Here to chat with me about the man who saved retail investors trillions over the last few decades and trillions more for years to come is author of The Bogle Effect, Eric Balkunis. For those unaware, The Bogle Effect is our Q1 pick for the Family Finance Mom Book Club. In today's episode, we will cover who was John Bogle and why is he the superhero for American investors that most of us have never heard of? What is The Bogle Effect? Why over the long run, the biggest impact on your investment portfolio is fees and why costs matter. What is an ETF and which is better for investors, ETFs or mutual funds? What is the next big thing that may disrupt investing in Wall Street that investors should be looking out for? And finally, what does today's modern investor portfolio look like? Welcome to Finance Explained, where you'll get the top financial headlines of the week, along with an explanation of what it all means and why it matters to you. Eric Balkunis is a senior ETF analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, where he leads the ETF and fund research and contributes to Bloomberg Opinion. He is a frequent speaker at industry events and conferences, as well as the co-creator of the Bloomberg podcast Trillions and Bloomberg TV's ETF IQ. Eric is the author of The Bogle Effect and the Institutional ETF Toolbox. He holds a bachelor's degree in journalism and environmental economics from Rutgers University. Please welcome Eric Balkunis. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Our listeners are, if they're participating in FFM Book Club, are reading your new book, The Bogle Effect. And so maybe just to get started, you know, you covered ETFs for Bloomberg for many, many years. Why did you now decide to write this book? Yeah, no, good question. Um, especially because Bogle had a kind of a love-hate relationship with ETFs. Um, but first of all, let me just say also, um, for those reading the book, I wrote this book that in a way that would reach both novice sort of 101 level as well as 201 you know, advisor. So there, if you can get through it though, I think you will really come out learning a lot about, it's like, it's full of vegetables and really healthy kind of, uh, Bogle was one big vegetable in uh, a Wall Street, which is full of like a lot of things that are bad for you and corruption. And Bogle was just this really unusual guy in that he was pretty selfless in not needing to be a billionaire and letting the investors have all the money. And uh, it's a wonderful story. And that was part of the reason I was drawn to the book was it's so unusual um, for someone to come in and set up an asset management company and let the customers be the owners. Um, that means you'll never be a billionaire. You just, it's like, you, you'll, you can make money, but you'll never be like Jeff Bezos rich or Peter Lynch rich or Warren Buffett rich. And he made that sacrifice. And that's that one sacrifice has changed the entire Wall Street investing apparatus. And it will continue to have ripple effects across the globe and in many different corners of the ecosystem. That's why I call it the Bogle effect. That one thing is, is really uh, massive. And the thing, the, the reason I thought I could write it is two reasons. One, I interviewed Bogle 
three different times for over an hour in his office before he passed away. And in the last interview in particular, he said a lot of things that were like forward looking. Last interview was six months before he passed away. So, and I had a lot of debates with him as an ETF analyst and he had some problems with the ETF. Our interviews were very spicy, uh, very, it was like an academic, was more of a debate than an interview in my opinion. And so I had some good energy in those interviews and I thought to myself, you know, I'm sitting on this great content. I got four and a half hours of Bogle, who I think is going to go down as having the most impact on investors and the asset management industry than any other human. And I've got to put this on paper. I mean, just for posterity. And I had the data. As an analyst, I also see how amazing Vanguard is at, at flows. They take in about a billion dollars every day. Wow. Not just lately, for 10 years, for the past 10 years. That is an enormous amount of money. Everybody takes it for granted, but it deserves to be studied. Um, so it's this, it's not only the interviews, it was the data that was so compelling. And so I really tried hard to capture him, his vibe, his energy, his story, while putting a lot of data in there. So it's not necessarily a biography. It's a little bit of a mix of um, biography and an analysis as well as a documentary, because I interviewed 50 people and I put their quotes throughout. So, because I also wondered, why isn't there a documentary on Bogle on Netflix? Yeah. There's someone, Warren Buffett, and there's definitely a lot of documentaries on people who do bad things on Wall Street. Right. So I wrote it almost as if it could be a Netflix documentary. So when you read it, you'll see people come in and uh, give their takes constantly throughout the book. So it's not just me talking. No, I, I loved all those little excerpts. Um, I kind of want to, you mentioned kind of this concept of the Bogle effect. And I kind of want to dig into the fact that it's really the combination of two things. Like it's the combination of making investable index funds that prior to that didn't really exist. But also it's the whole structure of Vanguard and bringing kind of low fee, low cost options to investors and not reaping those benefits. So just to kind of break that down more, you know, today we all talk about index funds. We all talk about like, you know, passive index fund investing and it being low fee and that how attractive and important that is for building wealth. But for listeners who may be new to investing and unfamiliar with kind of financial market history in the way that you and I are, can you help give some context for just how revolutionary this idea was and the it's really not, hasn't been around that long. Yeah. Um, first of all, if it wasn't for Bogle and setting up Vanguard as a mutually owned company, it's like a co-op in a way. Had he not done that, none of this really happens. I think indexing would be here, but index funds would probably cost 90 basis points or 0.90% instead of 0.05%. I mean, they're basically free at this point, but when Bogle set this company up, it was a little bit of out of necessity. It wasn't exactly like altruistic at the time, but I think Bogle generally was a, that kind of a guy. But certainly I go through the story of how he got into a fight with his partners at this money manager firm that was called Wellington. And as part of the deal to work it out, Bogle would set up a back office company called Vanguard and Vanguard would do like uh, all the record keeping, the boring stuff. And Bogle set that company up mutually owned, so it wouldn't look like he was getting a lot of um, payoff himself. But I will say Bogle wrote some stuff in his Princeton thesis that I thought was pretty altruistic. So I think Bogle wanted to do this experiment of a mutually owned asset manager. So he sets it up. 
And, you know, for a while, nobody cares. I mean, this is like in 1975. Um, the market's still rough from the crash of the 60s. Anyway, he, he reads a, a journal about uh, how active managers, a journal, um, uh, like an academic journal about how active managers aren't that great. And could somebody just please set up an index fund so we can grade the active manager? So he reads this and he goes, you know, I've got this company, Vanguard, and uh, part of the deal, um, he wasn't allowed to manage money. And so he thought I could do an index fund because I'm not managing it. And so he loved the idea of an index fund because he didn't invent indexing. He read about it. So he said, let's, let's set up an index fund. I don't, it, I can put it out because it won't be technically managing money. So there was an interesting necessity there too. A lot of necessity in this story where it wasn't Bogle like with a huge vision. It was more reacting to a constraint he had, which is, I love business stories like that. Anyway, so he puts the index fund out. Nobody cares for a while. One of the reasons is the index fund didn't pay brokers. At the time, everything had loads. So a broker mm -hmm. would need a money from the, from the mutual fund in order to put the client in it. Actually, it was the client's money that they took, right. but it's called a load. That's how they got paid. So that really was interesting because what it did is Bogle essentially set up the index fund and Vanguard outside of the whole system. It'd be like making a movie and, and having no distribution whatsoever. You need people to go to your backyard to watch it. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what he did. So that was a pretty courageous move. And Bogle at the time had, uh, you know, six kids. Uh, he could have easily, there was many times he could have just sold out, taken the money and had like a really nice rich life on Wall Street. And he didn't. Um, and so he sets it up. He really believes in it. And over the next 10, 20 years, he just starts to try to explain why indexing is great. Um, the index fund, when it first came out, charged 46 basis points. So it didn't start at zero because they were trying, they had to make money. But right. as they got more assets, they took some of the profit and passed it on in the form of lower fees. So every time the fees got lower, more assets came in. So they passed on those economies of scale, lowered the fee, rinse, uh, uh, rinse, wash and repeat for 45 years. All of a sudden now the fees are below five basis points on almost all of their funds. I think um, there's a couple cases where they're higher, like maybe international, I think it's nine, but let's say all below 10. Once it got below 20, 15, that's when it started to explode. Also, the internet came out and the internet really spread information and people could see like how their returns were versus this index fund. Because now you could just buy the market for free. It used to be, you could never buy the benchmark. The benchmark was something they went against. But now if you can buy the benchmark and you see the benchmarks beating the majority of active, um, all of a sudden, like the world turned and everybody was like, this makes a lot of sense. Um, that was 20, 30 years after he started this. Um, you know, I tell the the stat that's one of the most mind-blowing stats in the book is that 97% of Vanguard's assets came after Bogle stepped down as CEO. So this is a guy that toiled in, in obscurity and oblivion for a good 10, 20 years. And I like to tell this to other business leaders because it's a great story of perseverance. Mm -hmm. um, but eventually he broke through. And when he broke through, it became the Hemingway um, gradually, then suddenly. And now, again, you go to a billion a day, talk about, you know, sort of, uh, a watershed moment. And so that is how you got cheap index funds. Now everybody has them. So even though nobody has copied Vanguard's structure of being mutually owned, they all copy him or Vanguard with lower cost ETFs and index funds because that's what the they people have to, want. They, ha they, and they have, have to. to. <laughs> so in a way, Vanguard's structure is now the governing body of much of the investment world, even though no one copied the structure. So um, again, just to uh, 
unusual, remarkable, and highly impactful story. So when you buy your cheap index fund, just know there was like two or three decades of some guy <laughs> out there trying to make it happen. And so it did not come easy. But now this is a little bit of an investor utopia where you can right. get almost anything for almost no fee. It's it's wonderful time to be an investor. Yeah. And and just to the point I was saying that they have to, it's just the nature of the, the free market, right? Like if you have a choice between Fidelity, Schwab, and Vanguard, and all of them offer an S&P 500 index fund, but Vanguard offers it for, you know, five basis points of fee, and the others are offering at 50, where are you going to put your money? It's kind of a no-brainer. And so over time, he chipped away at the high cost fees being charged in the rest of the market. One thing I wanted to go back and touch on at the beginning, we were kind of talking about load fees. Um, you know, now every, and I guess if you want to call me a financial influencer, you know, most financial influencers today would be like, a load fee is a red flag. Anybody that's going to take, you know, 5% of your money off the top, like that's the worst starting point scenario you could think of. But that really used to be the industry norm. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, you know, um, Bogle has this great chart that shows if you invest in, in let's say, a, a sit, stocks and bonds funds, right, 60-40 portfolio, in one case, you get 7% annual return per year, and in the other case, you get 5%. So we'll call that 2% gap. It seems like no big deal. But over 50 years, that 10000 goes to like three hundred fifty grand in the 7%. But in the 5% bucket, it only grows to 140 grand. And so it's really the, the, the fees really get ugly as you compound. Mm -hmm. Early on, it's not a big deal. But as you compound, what you're doing is you're giving 60, 70% of all your gains to the money manager. In Vanguard, you're giving like 2, 3% ultimately at the end of the road with those five to 10 basis points. Now, that's even with before the load. You add the load on, you're like starting way beyond the starting line because you just gave them 5%. It's just not, it, you know, we all just took it for granted because it's the way it was. Right. If Vanguard hadn't come along, it's very possible we'd be might a little lower, but we wouldn't be anywhere near we, where we are. It took a really strange individual like this to go against the grain because it's much easier if you're in that industry to go with that flow mm -hmm. because you're going to make more money. So, it, you know, it, it wasn't just having this idea that we should be cheap. It was pulling it off in terms of not just having the vision, but to build a structure, to hire people, get good managers. A lot of times someone can be a very good thinker, but not a great doer, or they're not good with people. Every now and then you get someone who has like three or four of these amazing traits at high levels and mm -hmm. they change the world, you know, a Steve Jobs, a, a Jack Bogle. So Bogle was able to not just see it, but pull it off from the inside. And so I, I had a line in the book I took out because I didn't know how politics would change. But I said, Jack Bogle's done more to reform Wall Street than Bernie Sanders could ever dream of. And with if Bernie or somebody made a rule, the other party could get power and undo the rule. What Bogle's doing is permanent. It's mm -hmm. over. I mean, he changed it. He used capitalism to pull this off. And right. it's just it's such a, but again, it took a long time and a lot of, a lot of time, just patience and waiting and fighting this battle. Um, so it's a remarkable story, but yeah, the load is, is, I will say loads are going away. Most people are definitely onto the load thing. I will say when you go to other countries though, they're not like the 
it's amazing how much when you go out of the US, people are fine paying 2% in a load. Um, a lot of them have like their, <clears throat> somebody pointed out that in America, you know, they pushed us all to like do our 401ks instead of getting pensions. Right. And once they did that, they kind of made us all have to know something about funds. And so the American investor is much more with it than in other countries because the other countries, I think they can rely on their pension a little more. And they're not really, they never really got pushed to really figure out what, what am I in? What's it worth? What's the, so they don't really have much intellect uh, in terms of what funds are or investing. And in America, I think we're ahead of that curve. And I think that helped Vanguard uh, over time is because the American investor was a little more. A, a little savvier. Yeah, they'd read an article about fees, you know, um, so, but it's slowly, slowly going on overseas. The other thing with the loads is overseas, they still get loads as a way of payment. In the US, advisors and now are like 76% of our make money by getting a percent of your assets. Right. I think there's still 25% getting loads, but that was like, that completely was zero to 75%. It's probably gonna go to 100 eventually. In other parts of the world, that might be 5% right now, but that that idea of, the, of your advisor getting percentage, uh, getting a percent fee, instead mm -hmm. of commissions from the um, fund company, that is a powerful trend. Um, and that's one that has helped usher in the era of passive. I didn't, I didn't appreciate kind of that distinction or delineation between U.S. investors and foreign investors and kind of the, the evolution, I guess, of the market in the different places. I, didn't, I wasn't aware of that. That's interesting. One thing, you know, you mentioned you talk to a lot of prominent investors, and I really enjoy that you then share their takes on Bogle throughout the book. Um, so you get a lot of different perspectives and a lot of them rhyme, right? There, a lot of them share similar views on Bogle and his personality and like what he's done for finance. If readers take just one thing away from the Bogle effect, what do you think the most important thing is? Good question. Um, you know, my main thesis in the book is that index funds or indexing needed Vanguard way more than Vanguard needed indexing. Let's say indexing wasn't a concept and Vanguard came out with this mutually owned concept. I think eventually Bogle would have figured out how to launch his own funds that are active. And what we probably would be in a world where Vanguard's active funds would have six or seven times the assets of anybody else mm -hmm. because that structure would have lowered the fees on them. And they have, Vanguard does have active funds and they're way lower fee than the rest of the industry. And, and we've studied this over 10 to 20 year periods. What really matters is fees. Mm -hmm. Skill will matter maybe more earlier, but over time, Vanguard's active funds are going to rise to the top of the 20 year rankings of active funds simply because they're cheap and they don't have a lot of turnover. They're just, they're keeping costs low. And that lack of friction is almost like a source of alpha. Yeah. So Vanguard would have been at the top of the list. It would have taken 20 years too, but ultimately people would have figured out, wow, I'm going to go with the cheaper active fund. That's really where it's at. And so Vanguard would have been a big active manager. Indexing was the perfect match for Vanguard. Don't get me wrong. They both synergy benefited from each other, but Vanguard didn't really need it. Indexing would be 5%, in my opinion, of the assets it is today. It has 12, 13 trillion in assets in the US. I would, I think, I speculate in the book, it would have about 500 billion because it would be priced if there were no Bogle. It'd right. probably be priced at 80, 90 basis points. And it would be used by 
you know, in niche circumstances. Um, but the, the powerful thing is the cost. And yep. so I have a whole chapter called the great cost migration. And that's the real trend here. He says, you know, they call him the father of the index fund, but he's really the father of low cost. That's, and if you, if you asked him that, and, and even his son said that, that would, he said, his son even said he, his mantra, his whole life was cost matter. And he said, he, you know, he said that right into his, you know, basically his deathbed. Um, and that to me, the other thing I would say about, about this book that I found interesting was the cost matter is, um, I would almost title the book addition by subtraction because what Bogle really did was he just started taking out stuff that got in the way. Mm-hmm. So that's a expense ratio, the broker, right? He, you know, you, if you went to Vanguard, you didn't even use a broker. He took out the trading costs. Those funds don't turn over a lot. And so what he did is just remove all of the friction. So you're left with the frictionless exposure. And so I have a funny uh, little sidebar in the book where I compare Bogle to punk rock because Punk rock at the time came out in the early 70s, right around when Vanguard did. I think they were both a reaction to the over, overwrought, fluffy, um, pretentious 60s that just crashed. <laughs> and they were like, let's get real, you know? And Bogle and uh, Punk rock were birthed, at the, I mean, the Vanguard and Punk rock were birthed at the same time. And Johnny Ramone, who was uh, arguably the father of Punk rock, said, all we did was take out the stuff we didn't like about rock. And, you know, long guitar solos, the blues influence, all the indulgence. And we just, you know, nothing that would get, get in the way of the song. And I, I thought that was an interesting combo because to me, Vanguard is pretty much like that. There's nothing that gets in the way of the return, your return. And that's, that I think addition by subtraction is his life's work. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are things that I would, I think are the main points of the book. There's a lot of, a lot of other little side points, yeah. but those are the main theories. No, I mean, we all benefit from everything that he has done today. And so many people don't even know who he is. Um, and, you know, as you point out in a couple of places, he's saved us all trillions of dollars. And I think we all owe him a huge debt of gratitude for that. Um, maybe before I let you go, I'd love to shift gears for a second to your ETF expertise. Um, you know, I think ETFs are another one of those ideas that have kind of created a revolution in financial markets. And I'm going to put to you one of the questions that I get all the time. And usually it's something like, you know, should I invest in an index fund or an ETF? Or should I invest in an index fund or a mutual fund? Um, So sometimes people don't always get kind of the terminology correct and like the distinctions. Mm -hmm. But given your expertise, I'd love to kind of, how would you explain the clear difference between ETFs and mutual funds? Um, and what do you think is better for investors? Okay, um, an ETF is simply a mutual fund with benefits. Tends to be lower fee, tends to be, you know, more, it's, it's, you can trade it all day. So there's mm-hmm. intraday liquidity and it tends to be more, way more tax efficient. In other words, you won't just get a, ca- a capital gains distribution out of the blue. Um, people do not like that about mutual funds. If, if a mutual, if you're in a 401k, Mutual fund is fine though. ETFs lose all their superpowers in a 401k plan because you don't need to trade a 401k. If you're in a 401k with your job, you're usually getting the institutional class of the mutual Mm -hmm. fund, which is tends to be priced around where the ETF is. And the other thing is the tax efficiency doesn't matter because 401k is a tax deferred. So um, the tax exempt. And so you don't really, um, uh, in my 401k, I have some mutual funds. 
um, because it, it's okay. I, well, and, and also often that's all you have access to many times correct. in a 401k. So if you're in your 401k and you're only mutual funds, that's where I think I would look at, is it active or passive? What's the fee? And I would just judge them that way. So you don't need ETFs to do the, the sort of bogle kind of investing philosophy. You can certainly do them with mutual funds. Some 401ks though, 401k plans though, if they only have like high cost active funds, I would definitely inquire. My guess is that company is getting some kind of a revenue sharing with the, the fund manager. Um, yeah, it's annoying. I, I, some uh, in the book I talk about uh, a lawyer came out and sued a lot of companies for that and won. Um, and he actually went to Bogle before he started this because these companies have a lot of lawyers. Anyway, you should at this point, because of his work, now I think 401k plans tend to try to be much more fiduciary. So you probably have some decent choices in there. Now, if you have a, an account outside of that, ETFs can make a lot of sense. Um, but it doesn't matter. Like a, a Vanguard total market index fund, the, um, I think you can get for three basis points. And the VTI, which is the ETF share class or equivalent of it, is three. So Bogle would say use the mutual fund because the ETF, um, the one of the benefits, he would call a drawback, intraday trading. He thought mm -hmm. if you're tempted to trade and um, <clears throat> that's something you can't handle, the mutual fund could be a better choice. But pound for pound, people, I think, are getting more into ETFs because of those reasons. Because you can get everything, everything that you can get in a mutual fund, you get an ETF for usually a little better deal. Also, what ETFs do is externalize costs, right? So like if you're going to, the tax is on you when you sell, not on me. Right. Um, a lot of the internal costs to running a mutual fund are, are higher than an ETF. They tend to be cheaper to run. So there's not some of that thick, like the, the admin and operational costs can be lower. So the overall fee is lower. Um, and so, I don't know, I, I, I tend to think ETFs are just a... Um, uh, a vehicle for the 21st century. They make a little more sense than the mutual fund, but that isn't to say the mutual fund is, has no purpose. You know, maybe I'd right. compare vinyl to digital. There are cases where vinyl might make a lot of sense to listen to, like um, depending on your sound system and what the album is. Uh, but generally people are all going to move to digital music right now. It's just more flexible. It's cheaper. And it's just a better feeling and, and value proposition for the customer. So um, that's really it. I, but both of them, the main thing is to look at what they hold. Uh, there's so many ETFs now. And ETFs, I will say, unlike mutual funds, the experiment, the experiment, um, the experimenting, I guess, is really wild. I mean, there's, they're putting yeah. all kinds of stuff out there. And there can be some complex stuff. So we created traffic light with green, yellow, and red to sort of say like green is like your plain vanilla rated G stuff. You don't really have to worry about anything. Yellow, okay. Maybe there's a hidden cost here, or this thing holds derivatives. You need to know that. <clears throat> and then red would be stuff that's like leveraged or rolls futures. So be careful. E the only thing with ETFs, I would say, is a big tent. And there are wings of the ETF market that are pretty complex for the a novice. So what I would do is, and this is what Bogle would suggest, is just stay to the, stick to the plain vanilla area mm -hmm. of the ETF world and, and you're fine. But like I said, I, um, I am a mutual fund analyst as well, and um, there are some uh, case for them. But largely speaking, I think ETFs, you kind of get what you get in a mutual fund, but in, in a better way. And so they're ultimately going to keep stealing share from mutual funds for the next 30 years. So, you know, we've talked both about ETFs and Bogle, who really altered financial markets for the better, um, and especially for retail investors. 
Is there anything, you know, there's always kind of the newest, latest, greatest thing happening in finance. Is there anything that you see out there today that might be that thing that we're talking about in the same way, maybe 10 years from now? Um, look, I think the idea that you can get exposure to all asset classes for under five basis points, maybe in some cases, 10, like for example, high yield bond ETFs, the lowest, the cheapest one is I think 10 basis points, but Schwab's coming out with one that's probably gonna be five or six. Even in those sort of, I guess, next level asset classes, you're now basically can get them for under five. So you can get a whole portfolio for <clears throat> really under six, seven basis points. To me, that world just arrived. Mm -hmm. That is the disruptor. I don't really think much is going to touch that for a long time. There's some talk of direct indexing where you, they get all that they recreate the whole index for you and then maybe customize it. <clears throat> and you can do tax loss harvesting a little better. And, oh, you don't like Exxon, we'll take it out. Yep. There is a compelling case for DI, but the problem is what's the outcome going to be? A, now right. you're playing active manager. B, it charges like 10 times that of a four basis point index fund. And C, the tax alpha can get confusing. If you keep messing with it, now you're not tracking right. Or what if the market just keeps going down like it is? You can tax loss harvest with ETFs anyway. So the tax loss harvest, the, the tax alpha of direct indexing is a variable. It's not a constant. But for maybe some ultra high net worth people, that, that might be an interesting option. I think for the general public, though, DI, direct indexing, will, will not disrupt ETFs. That's one thing that they say, well, I don't think we're going to anything like tokenization or there's a lot of things get thrown out. But I, my theory is the ETF at under 10 basis points, it, it's just arrived. It's going to have a 30, 40 year run here. Um, the other thing that gets talked about as a big trend is ESG. I think that's overblown too. ESG, the problem with that is it wants to replace your three basis point total market fund. It, it says, look, we're going to do all this stuff. So you're like going to save the world or whatever. <clears throat> but it's not saying put 1% in us because that makes no sense. It's saying you kind of have to go all the way. Right. Anything trying to dislodge a three bait like VTI or VOO, anything trying to dislodge from the core, I'm bearish on. It's too good of a deal. Right. Um, I don't know what could upset that. I think the modern portfolio for the next 30, 40 years is going to look like this. 80% 80, 80 of it's going to be like five basis points, 60, 40, right? So basically your whole thing for under five, then people are going to and add on. That's the customization. Maybe you love yield. You put a little high income in there. You believe in ARK and Kathy Wood. You put a little of that in there because some of those stocks are not in the index. Maybe you want a little crypto. Um, maybe you have something in there where you, uh, I don't know, you have a special love for Southeast Asia. So you put a little Southeast Asia. So I think that that 20% or 15%, we frequently call it the hot sauce bucket. Um, you'll have plain vanilla and then decoration hot sauce on top. And I think the, that's going to be the way portfolios get um, designed in the future. And we see it in the flows. Most of the flows go to either cheap or shiny. Uh, the cheap bucket gets the majority, but then the shiny is getting their getting their take to it's the middle that's going to go extinct where they charge you like 80 to 100 basis points for active that largely looks like the index right that's where esg has a problem it's kind of in the middle between cheap and shiny and so i think esg might have a little bit it might carve out a niche but it's not going to take over same with di so i would say we just arrived to this investor utopia and that is going to 
disrupt anything that tries to disrupt it for at least 20, 30 years. And, and also it's hard. I think it's, <laughs> it, it is hard to innovate in financial markets at such a low fee when you're competing up against, you know, Vanguard got to low fee because of their structure, but also from volume. And so yeah. it, it gets to be harder and harder to <clears throat> innovate when you can't, when you have to compete on costs at the outset. So, you know, to your point, I think you're right that, you know, you've got 85, 90% of people's wallet that is going to go for low fee. And so really then you're just competing with this much smaller piece of the wallet share. Um, Absolutely. That's why ETF launches are going to get crazier and crazier because there's no reason to compete for with Vanguard. So you're going to see a lot of experimentation. Um, nine out of 10 of them, um, let's say eight out of 10 of them will probably, you know, kind of live in oblivion. But in that experimentation, it's going to be some interesting stuff. Like there was an ETF that came out that will give you Tesla. It goes long Tesla, but then it writes call options, which can be have a nice premium. So what mm -hmm. you get is this nice income, but you give up upside in Tesla. But that also gives you cushion on the downside. So right. I can see the volatility. That. Yeah. I mean, um, there's also, um, uh, you know, the, the idea that, um, you know, there's single stock ETFs, single bond ETFs. Uh, thematic investing is kind of growing. There's a lot of things that will compete for that lane. But yeah, um, to your point, though, I do think there could be an environment where we have regulation stopping the size of Vanguard and BlackRock. But the good news is the genie's out of the bottle. You can now go over to Fidelity and get the same thing for the same cost. And that's why I called it the Bogle effect and not just the Bogle story, because the effect is really, um, you know, half the story here. Right. And I think one thing you might see, though, is you could see um, these companies like Fidelity, BlackRock, and, and Vanguard and such, Schwab, they'll compete over customer service. Because if Vanguard has an Achilles heel, it's their customer service. They just don't make that much money. And so that's been uh, a struggle for them. Fidelity makes probably two and a half times annual revenue of Vanguard. So their, their customer service is good. So I was at the Bogleheads convention, which is like Bogle believers, and some of them go to Fidelity and buy Vanguard funds there just to get the customer service. Huh, yeah, but yeah. So I think you might see some of those companies actually get some share from Vanguard, but the share they're going to get is an, is a, not a great customer for them because those are the people who are going to just stick to cheap and they're not going to be like easy to upsell into something more expensive. And so I think that's uh, ultimately uh, another trend that, that I would look out for is sort of, them competing over customer service. And, and I think uh, that will spread the assets out a little more. But yeah, it's possible Vanguard and or BlackRock um, is going to be like somehow like told they can't get any bigger. Because yeah. between the two of them, they now own 15% of every stock in America. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's nuts. Um, so you are just, I think, a, a plethora of information on markets, indexing, ETFs, um, for <laughs> listeners who'd like to learn more from you, where should they go? Where can they hear from you on a regular basis? Sure. So um, obviously I publish on the Bloomberg Terminal, but retail investors don't use that. So what I would do is I'd go to these two places. Number one, uh, Twitter, um, at Eric Valchunas. I tweet and put out charts there all the time. Uh, obviously that's free. And then I have a podcast called Trillions which is all about ETFs. And I co-host it with uh, Joel Weber, who's editor of Business Week. And Joel 
keeps me out of the weeds because he's not an ETF person. He's a generalist. So um, it's trying to, you know, that's podcast is aimed largely at retail, but I wouldn't say total novices. I mean, I think it's retail people who are into investing. Uh, those would be two, I think, <clears throat> places to find me. Um, and, and outside of the book, of course, but, you know, yeah. obviously um, that's another place, but that I would say that's, that's not free. It's close to free. It's not that high cost of a book. It's pretty low cost. It's, but you know what? I'm I'm always a big believer in the library. And now you can like check out ebooks from your like in your pajamas from home on so it can be free. Um, but I definitely I enjoy trillions and listen to it regularly. So highly recommend any of you guys who want to keep hearing from Eric to check that out. So thank you, Eric, again so much for your time today. You've shared such great information. Definitely encourage those of you who enjoyed this conversation, want to learn more about Vogel, who really, I think, should be as common a household name as like Warren Buffett, but isn't. Um, it's weird. It, yeah, it, it's yeah. super weird. But I, hopefully maybe the Vogel effect has some impact and, and changes that. It, and I wouldn't mind a Netflix documentary either and have people watch that instead of watching like, you know, Madoff over and over and over again. I know. That's part of why I wrote it and I, when I was marketing it, I was marketing it side by side to Mary Childs who wrote The Bond King about Bill Gross and Pimco. And she had so many salacious details and crazy stories and backstabbing. And it was like the real housewives over there. And I didn't have any of that. And I was a little jealous because that stuff is easy to read. It goes down easier. But I said, what I lack in drama um, and like dirty laundry, I made up for in impact. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. I, um, I was talking to a guy at Morningstar who is a big Vanguard analyst and he was like, dude, you got to make a documentary. So um, yeah, maybe someday this book will be turned into a documentary. I think it'd be cool. Like, um, and I think it's a great story and a refreshing one. Normally, again, they only cover the bad guys on Wall Street, but there are some good people there. Um, and he, he might be, I, I'd say, one of the best. Well, I mean, Buffett, the book opens with Buffett's quote that if there was ever a statue for anybody um, in this industry, it should be Bogle. I think that that's a great, that's a great ending note. So thank you, Eric, again, so much for your time today. Thank you for uh, uh, having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much to Eric for sharing his considerable expertise in ETFs with us today, as well as for enlightening us all about investors, truly unsung hero, John Bogle. For those who would like to join in the family finance mom book club, we welcome you. Joining is simple. Just follow me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom and follow the hashtag FFM Book Club. We read one book every quarter with discussions each March, June, September, and December. I make three to four posts and discussions take place right in the comments section. You can learn more about FFM Book Club and find links to all of Eric's contact information in today's show notes. Have questions about the economy or your personal finances? Submit a question for the Finance Explained podcast. Look for the link in the show notes anytime and I'll address it on one of our weekly episodes. As always, I so appreciate your support. It is your questions, weekly listening, sharing with friends, and especially your honest and thoughtful reviews that help make Finance Explained possible. So that's it for this week's episode of Finance Explained by Family Finance Mom. I hope each week to build and expand your financial literacy, help you understand not only the week's headlines, but how they relate to you, 
and also you can make better financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your futures.